we recognize that it has downsides and that you know what we're building is not for everyone. And we sort of embrace that. Yeah, I'm just not a consumer for a shiny new tool. I'm a consumer for like, you know, this tool works pretty well. This is also one of the problems with Dark. It's like, you know, what can you do with Dark? It's like, well, it's a programming language. What can you do with a programming language? You can do, you can do anything. You're listening to Unintended Consequences, the podcast that explores how systems become large and complex and how they change the lives of everyone they touch. I'm Kim Harrison, team sociologist. I'm Yoz Graham, software wrangler. And I'm Heidi Waterhouse, transformation advocate. We work at LaunchDarkly, the feature management platform that gives you more control over your code and how it gets delivered. Unintended Consequences is brought to you by Heavybit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. On today's episode of Unintended Consequences, I talk with Paul Bigger about Dark and how it can be used and how people feel about it, especially in a world where we've been taught to avoid vendor lock-in. I hope you enjoy it. If you had a law named after you, like Conway's Law, Mm -hmm. what would it be? Oh. Bigger's Law. What what do you wish people knew in a way that they, you know, bought copies of the Mythical Man Month? Mm. I know, that's a hard question. My mind is going blank because I I have a lot of these things where it's like, oh, when I'm king, this is going to be different. And for some reason, none of them are are popping into my head at the moment. Well, yeah. Uh, Might want to come back to me on this one. Yeah, if you think of it later, let me know. Yeah. So what are the tools that you use when you're thinking about trying to build? I said to somebody that Dark was sort of like the early uh, car dealerships where it was sort of all in one. Mm -hmm. You didn't just buy a car, you bought like a place to buy gas and all of your Mm. service. And how do you think about that? Like, how do you understand what you're doing? So I I think... The most important thing is we recognize that it has downsides and that you know what we're building is not for everyone. Yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier, people can't use Vim. You can't write Dark using Vim. Uh, you can't run it on your own servers. You can't run it you know, not in the cloud. And you, know, you can't use Python or whatever. Right? So, so these are the major problems that, that people identify. You know, sometimes they call it vendor lock-in, but you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why people you know, are afraid of vendor lock-in. And, and we, we sort of embrace that. You know, we, we embrace all of these things are downsides. And if they're deal breakers for you, then that's fine. You know, just keep using whatever you're using. Keep using the cloud. Keep using Python. Keep using Vim. Don't use Dark. And, and once we do accept that, then it's like, it's very freeing. It's like, we're recognizing the constraints of our system and then we're building great stuff within that constraints only for the people who are able to accept those constraints. And I think that if we instead, you know, had spent a lot of time saying, well, you know, we need to support Python and, and therefore we also need to support Node and we need to support Rails and, you know, we're, we're building all this. Or, you know, we need to allow people to run this on their own services or their own servers or their own, you know, using Vim. I'm not sure we would have made anything of interest at all. I don't even know what it would have been. It would have been boring, though. We probably wouldn't have done anything. That's actually a super interesting point to say, these are not the things I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's a common problem, especially as people try and scale, to say we could do all the things. Mm-hmm. And you hear the feedback from people. You know, I, I would use Dark, except I need to run it on my own servers. Right. And you're like, okay, then you can't use Dark. Right. But it's hard to say that without being a 
sort of a jerk. Well, yeah. I mean, we're I, I've practiced a couple of ways of saying it. it's like, well, that's unfortunate. Maybe you'll change your mind in the future. No, wait, that 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 sounds conceited. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the other way to do it is to say, oh, you know, our customer feedback is telling us that we need to be able to run this on on our own servers, or that you know we need to use Vim or the support Python, whatever. And you know, the important thing is like what I said earlier, the, the vision, but maybe it's just like the conviction that there is value in what we're building and that the knowledge that those things are the wrong direction and those are the things that we aren't going to build. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a thing that a lot of founders struggle with is saying no to cool ideas or possibly market-pleasing ideas in order mm-hmm. to pursue this pure vision. At the start of Circle, the one that we always heard was, I'm never going to put more source code in the cloud. Hmm. And they, they were lying I mean, to themselves as well, probably. But like they, they already had their source code in the cloud. It, you know, it was on GitHub. So the thing that was important for us was to try to understand the message behind what they were saying. So they were saying, you know, I'll never put more source code in the cloud. What they were actually saying is, like, you're a tiny startup and we don't trust you yet. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think this is... An interesting thing about talking to people who don't wear masks. Oh, politically controversial talk. I love it. I know. But when you say, why don't you make a, wear a mask? They say, it, it's hard for me to breathe. Well, we have science that says mm-hmm. it isn't actually reducing your oxygen flow any. Right. Like, we've done it with a bunch of people, including asthmatic people. What's happening is you're having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. But you can't say to people, you're irrational and having a panic attack. <laughs> it's not convincing. Right. And we know from all sorts of public health things that the way you actually deal with this is to say, I know it's uncomfortable to start with sympathizing mm-hmm. and say, like, how can we work through this together? How can we make this more tolerable for you rather than denying that experience? Mm-hmm. So rather than denying the experience of like, I don't want to put my source code in the cloud, what you're saying is that you had to sort of dig in and say, oh, you're uncomfortable because you're scared that it will go down. Okay, how do we mitigate that in a way that's not dismissive? Yeah, and I think the other advantage that we have when you're building a startup or something is, is that there's always later. You know, you, you kind of have to wear a mask now if you're going to prevent coronavirus now. But, you know, if you don't want to put your source code in the cloud, you know, maybe you will next year, maybe you will the year after. And we, we have this concept of, um, you know, the crossing the chasm and there's the innovators and the early adopters and the late adopters and the late majority and, and all that sort of thing. And, you know, when you're looking for product market fit, being able to take the people who are not in the category that matters right now and say, you know, just actually their feedback isn't useful. And this is something that venture capitalists do very badly. Um, (laughs) You mean the it's the Uber for? Well, I I specifically mean around uh, developer tools because... Most venture capitalists do not actually understand how software is built and, and definitely don't understand the developer mindset. And so they rely on, on proxies. You know, they, they have a friend that they reach out to who's like, you know, let's say that they're the head of infrastructure at Pinterest or, or Facebook or something like that. And you know, they say, this dark thing, it looks interesting. Will anyone ever use it? And the most likely response, if you're the head of infrastructure at Pinterest, is say, fuck no. There's no way I would let that anywhere near my systems. That's ridiculous. But that's not, you're asking someone who's in the late majority on software systems, who who has like a very low risk tolerance and very little interest in innovation. And you're asking them, do you want to use this like shiny new tool that will change how you make software? And like, of course, the answer is going to be no. Right. 
I have a friend who's a sysadmin, and she's like, I would love to use Terraform. I would love to learn Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. I'm working with, she works in um, IT for a university. Mm -hmm. I'm working with something called CS Gold. It's 40-year-old software, and the licensing model is literally impossible to put in the cloud. Hmm. I can't use Terraform to do that. And so why do you keep asking me about going to the cloud? It's, mm -hmm. it's not possible. We have to have a license server physically located in a data center. Wow. Right. And there are a lot of people all over the world who are dealing with, you know, this kind of problem. And we can't serve them all mm -hmm. with our shiny newness. So one of the interesting things about product market fit is like, who could even make a change? Mm-hmm. Right. If you're talking to or getting feedback from a group that has to deploy a licensed server on the local thing, they do not want Dark. Dark has no value to them at all. Right. And I think it's really easy for VCs, especially, to just, like, everything that's older than, like, four years drops off the radar. <laughs> I'm like, you understand that all of our... All of our insurance companies are running off an OS 390 system in a basement, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's just layers of Java on top of it. There must be someone who's like cloudifying mainframes, right? I've actually been some, to some really interesting like DevOps on the mainframe talks at like SRECon and stuff. But it's sort of like we'll never get rid of COBOL until we write a programming language that actually does math properly. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, it's like mm. there are these constraints that are not visible in the developer tools world because... So COBOL d doesn't use doubles? Yeah, it's a floating point thing. Uh, I honestly only sort of understand it. But if you're dealing with financial data, it matters quite a lot mm -hmm. how many decimal points of accuracy you get out. And most of the modern languages are sort of like, you know, ish, more or less. Right. Which is fine for everything but financial systems and like space math. Well, I'm kind of thinking like somewhere there's a business where like you take a 390 or OS 390 emulator and you put it on Kubernetes and like suddenly you can be in the cloud, but also like mainframes never fail. Right. Right. The, as long as you can get the parts for them. Yeah, there's like you know, massive redundancy. And I remember reading about a mainframe that was like transported across town one piece at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, and like it worked the entire time, you know, despite being split across two locations as, as it was being transferred. I was like, yeah, you're not getting that in, in the cloud, certainly not in Kubernetes. Right. And I think it's interesting because there are different risk factors and different tolerances. But I think it's very easy for internally at LaunchDarkly, we sort of call it the cool kids. Mm -hmm. yeah. The VC-backed developer tools, mm -hmm. we're all selling to each other. And then we're trying to get out into enterprise and have this different experience. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a shock to the system when we start doing it. Yeah, it's funny. Like I'm not a buyer of any of those cool kids software. Mm -hmm. I, I actually don't understand dev tools these days. Like I, I feel like... There was just an explosion of dev tools. Like you know, GitHub who was the first wave, I consider Circle CI part of the second wave. And we're on like the fifth wave. And there's just like thousands of developer tool software. And they're like, you know, I'm AI for Kubernetes. And I'm like, what? I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, try not to name a specific company here because I, you know, I, I think you're all doing great. Yeah, you know, I'm just not a consumer for a shiny new tool. I'm I'm a consumer for like, you know, this tool works pretty well. And 
my hope with Dark, at least, is that it's so much better than the way that you do it that people will switch over. But I, you know, I don't have a need for like something that's slightly better at you know one of the things I'm already doing and slots in nicely. I, I think it's actually really hard to build dev tools because you have to slot in nicely. But if you slot in nicely, you know, it's also hard to have that 10x improvement you need for people to switch to your software. So you might even be better off like not slotting in nicely and just having a wholesale replacement, which is what we're doing. Yeah, I was going to say, mm, sounds familiar. Mm. And I think it will be interesting to see if it is easier to get people to start using Dark as they start projects. Yeah. Rather than trying to replace what they already have. Yeah, what we're telling people is build your thing in Dark. And if you find that, you know, that it's not able to accomplish what you need it to, it will be fairly trivial to rewrite it in something else. And what you got out of it is like the prototyping, the the figuring out what it was that you're building and all of that was super fast. And then, you know, oh, it doesn't scale or dark doesn't scale yet to the size that you need it to. It's like, okay, well, now that you know what it is, it'll take you a weekend to rewrite that in Node or whatever. That's actually a super interesting pitch that I hadn't heard from Dark before, that you're a rapid prototyping tool. Well, we are not a rapid prototyping tool. But... Worst case, you could use us as a rapid prototyping tool mm-hmm. if we did not satisfy your needs. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting, yeah. like there's not a lot of cost. Yeah. One of the, the things we spend a lot of time talking to people around feature flags is like, where do I start? Mm-hmm. I have, you know, years and years of features. How would I even mm-hmm. get going on that? And we're like, start with the new stuff mm-hmm. and yeah. then start with the stuff that hurts. Yeah. Almost no one can afford to do a complete shift, a complete changeover. And I'm sure that's part of what you're struggling with, too, is like, at what point in a company do you change your development method? Right, yeah, the new stuff. Yeah. With testing at Circle, people would say, like, oh, we don't do testing. Like, where should we start? And I'm just like, write one test. That's... (laughs) Like the, you know, there's an overhead of, of adding the test harness and you know, adding CI and that sort of thing. So, so literally just like test one thing. And once you've got that in, it'll be so much cheaper to add the other tests that like you'll, you'll get real value from them. That's a great point that the longest journey starts with a single step or a single test. Right. So I'm sure it's the same with feature flags. It's like you want to add feature flags. It's just like whatever feature is coming out next, add it to that. And then you know you'll pay for it, and then it'll be cheap for the the later ones. But you don't want part of your journey to adopting feature flags to be like, oh, we also need to train you know these teams on doing it, and like you know we're we're not done until or you know, nothing is shipped. We get no value until like every team uses it. It's like, well, that that's not true. You you get value if one team uses it and you know accomplishes something with it, and you can grow from there. Yeah, incremental and feedback appear to be the watchwords. Mm-hmm. And low risk, I think. And low risk, yeah. So as we wrap up, who should we be talking to? Mm. You already mentioned charity majors. Like, I think charity is one of the most interesting people in technology. Yes. I got to be on a, a panel with her earlier this week. Oh. I, and I love it because she's like the wild-eyed radical and I'm like the smooth, uh, persuasive radical and together. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's nothing she won't say. And it's like knowing that she's afraid of it. It's, it's fabulous. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And if we were going to go read something that was part of your influences for creating Dark, what do you think it should Ooh. Yeah. So you mentioned the Mythical Man Month. Mm-hmm. That, that was where, where I got the phrase accidental complexity and essential complexity. I think it is a book that is no longer completely universally true, but is so close to universally true that it's a really excellent read. The rest of my influences are like, 
you know, books about type systems and functional programming. So they're probably not the best place to start, but Mythical Man Month is wonderful. It is a great book. And would you like to promote anything? Would I like to promote anything? Uh, I, I've been promoting Dark this entire episode. Well, we, we knew that when we asked you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do a podcast with Edith. It's called uh, To Be Continuous. And it's funny, We every, every episode we plug feature flags, just like all the time. It just comes up all the time. Uh, so I finally get to my own plugging. <laughs> I think it's one of the interesting things is people are like, so are feature flags a pattern? And I'm like, no, they're like an Uber pattern. They're a tool that has many patterns. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, testing and experimentation mm-hmm. and kill switches and circuit breakers. It, these are all sub-patterns. But sometimes I worry that I sound a little unhinged when I talk about it. So This is also one of the problems with Dark. It's like, you know, what can you do with Dark? It's like, well, it's a programming language. What can you do with a programming language? You can do, you can do anything. And people really want, you know, like Shopify. I can build a shop online. And it's like, you know, can you build a shop online with Dark? You know, I suppose it would take you a while. But you know, programming lines, you can do literally anything. Feature flags, you can do you know, this huge set of things with them and it's like telling people why this thing needs to exist when it's so general and so like widely applicable. Like a feature flag is an if statement. You know, trying to sell people on an if statement. It's an if statement you can control from your dashboard. It's like, what can you do with that? Well, quite a lot of things. Yes. I, what do you need to do? Yeah. yeah. It's sort of an interesting problem and it's been fascinating for me to realize that a lot of what people are asking me as a developer advocate for is opinions. They really want an opinionated rule set for how to use feature flags in their situation. I'm like, oh, it totally makes sense that you want that. Mm, yeah. It's like you're looking at butter and flour and eggs. It could be scones. It could be pancakes, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're like, please teach me how to make pancakes. Okay, well, if mm-hmm. that's what you want, here's how you do it. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it sort of implies that the people who are going to use us in the absence of this are sort of like wild-eyed technologists who can fill in the blanks themselves. But you can't get across the chasm without saying, you know, very specifically, this is how you make pancakes. Because those people are like looking for pancake recipes. They're not looking for like, I've got flour and eggs, what can I do? Right. They're, they're not people in search of a tool. They're people in search of a solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you, you maybe pop up like third below Stack Overflow. Yeah. And really what they want to do is cut and paste. And it's like after they get through the first two and realize they can't cut and paste their way to a solution, it's like, oh, maybe I should use a service. Right. And I think that probably affects Dark a lot too, where you're like, mm-hmm. uh, okay, what do you want? Tell me what it is you're trying to do so I can help you. So we tried doing a little bit more specific stuff. So we're like, all right, you know, Dark is the best place to build a Slack bot. And yeah, you know, great. And what do you do with a Slack bot? Well, sort of anything. You know, Slack bot is just a way to communicate to a service which does something else. And so then you also need the ability to be able to do everything else. And it's like, we decided we were going to use flour, and it's like, now, now what? Yeah, we're, we're still not still not there. <laughs> what is the quote? To make an apple pie, you must first create the universe. Mm, right. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting to try and be a revolutionary and still cross the chasm. Mm-hmm. Enterprise people. Wow, I never thought of myself as a revolutionary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I have a talk that I've been giving about what Martin Luther and Che Guevara have in common. Mm-hmm. And it's they believed in universal literacy. Hmm. Okay. And also like 
the overthrow of the celibate priesthood, but mostly universal literacy. Let's go with that one. Um, yeah. But when I think about being able to control features, I don't want it to be just developers who can control features. I mm-hmm. want it to be product management and I want it to be customer support. And I want this right. universal literacy. And I'm like, oh, I'm attempting to distribute power to the masses. I, I'm sure you've thought of it this way, but the uh, I think that that it occurs to me is that in the past, only developers were able to, you know, write the if statement or you know, and go through the git commit thing. Are you guys like low code for if statements? Absolutely, we are no code. You you were talking about a Slack bot. I'm saying I have a Slack bot that will let you, once your developer sets it up, mm-hmm. turn on and off whatever. Oh, of course, yeah. And it's so cool because I'm like, okay, so the customer support wants to see what flags a person has on or off in Salesforce. Mm -hmm. So you go into Salesforce and you check the customer and you're like, oh, okay, this is what they have on. Mm -hmm. It's so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, developer tool is just the beginning for how much we can empower everyone who's dealing with software. I mean, is LaunchDarkly really a developer tool? So it depends on who you ask. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think so. I think that the closest analogy to what LaunchDarkly is is actually middleware. Oh. Which is um, not very exciting, except to me, evidently. I'm super excited about it. I, I've just been building, rebuilding Dark's middleware stack, and I was thinking about how could a Dark developer decide to change the middleware stack? So I've been thinking about like feature flags of middleware stacks as opposed to like feature flags in middleware stacks. Right. So for those who are not deep in that that particular set of weeds, middleware is the stuff that connects your software to other software at its most basic level. It's sort of like the API level of your software for itself. What do you think? You all can't see this, but Paul is blinking at me because this is not at all how he would describe it. slow blink. I started my career in middleware in the games industry. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think middleware in the games industry was just what they called dev tools. <laughs> uh, people were building like you know physics engines and audio engines and uh, compilers and uh, and that sort of thing. But it, it was interesting because it was the only part of the games industry that didn't have these crazy deadlines and death marches and and that sort of thing. So like you got to be in the games industry without having a horrific life. Oh, that's not the worst. Yeah. I spent five years working in middleware that sat on top of IBM WebSphere MQ. Fun. Oh, it was so exciting. Literally, this software had originally been born as sewage monitoring software. And through a series of transformations, because it turns out that Things flowing through a pipe, mm-hmm. whether or not the pipe is virtual, need to be monitored the same way. Is there a backup? Really? R- like when you think about it. Wow. Right? I mean, it seems like a reach, but I, yeah, I believe it. Yeah. So MQ series is just making sure that messages get from one place to another. Mm-hmm. And this software that we were working with was making sure that there were no backups in the system or sudden outages like almost as worrisome as an overage in your sewage pipe is an absence because where did Mm. the shit go? (laughs) Nowhere good. Yeah, wow. And it was incredibly unglamorous. And also I got really fast at installing databases because I was a technical writer, so I had to keep reinstalling the database to check the installation instructions. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. I, mean, I couldn't use them at all. I could just install it. Yeah, yeah, That, yeah. that was install. irrelevant. But it was this thing that connected ATMs and airplanes and everything in the world worked through message queuing and, and still kind of does. And you have to have something that makes sure things get from one side to the other. And when I think about what LaunchDarkly may grow up to be, DevTool is like stage one mm -hmm. and stage three is a way to make sure that everybody is getting exactly what they want when they need it. Mm -hmm. And if they get exactly what they want when they need it with, you know, targeting and rule sets, then we're not over delivering things. Then we're making the internet more efficient. So you think at some point, like, uh, you know, parents are going to use LaunchDarkly to turn off the internet until kids have finished their homework? Uh, yes, and they will never know they're using LaunchDarkly. Uh, right, right. It will look like they're using Comcast to do it. Uh-huh. Or it will look like, you know, Net Nanny. And when their kid hits submit on their homework, mm -hmm. then we flip the flag that turns their internet back on. Oh, automatically. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Right. Yeah. Right. It, I mean, it's all the same concept. It, it's an if statement if you turn in your homework. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an if statement, yeah. It's so interesting because so many times I talk to people who are like, it's a fancy if statement. I can write if statements myself. Thank you. And I'm like, yeah, but mm -hmm. it's very fancy and distributed. Yeah. So I will say, Paul, that this is certainly like the Heidi specific vision of what mm -hmm. LaunchDarkly may be. And I don't know. I think that we have a lot of space that we're still working through to to be the best developer tool that we can be right now. And we're mm -hmm. still anticipating what the market's going to need. Mm -hmm. I've been recently doing a, a rewrite of our backend technology stack. And one of the things that is sort of, it's not a motivating factor exactly, but it's, it's very exciting, is that I will finally be in a stack that has a first-party LaunchDarkly SDK. Yay! Before it was written in OCaml, and it's like, yeah, we're not writing our own OCaml client for, for LaunchDarkly, but now <laughs> I'm excited to, to finally use LaunchDarkly after all these years. I read your article about OCaml, and I thought it was really an interesting reflection on a bet that you lost. Oh, I think we won the bet. Did you? Okay. At least we won it for two years. Maybe we started losing it after that. It's like you know, the decisions that you make at the start, you know, the main thing you're trying to get out of them is like the local win. And we, I, I think we, we got the win for like a couple of years. And we're now at a point where like there's, it's, it's a loss. But I think overall we, uh, mm -hmm. we won. That's a good reflection. Like the things that we need early are not the things that we need later. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now we need things like LaunchDarkly. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is Bigger's Law. Like... Grow with what you have until you need something else. Oh, you know, I do believe something like this, which is like, it's like solve the problem that's directly in front of you. Okay. Like the, you know, don't overthink it. That might be the same as you ain't going to need it. I think someone else has this law. Mm, that's true. Uh, Maybe. But, you know, I don't remember who, so. Yeah, no, no one has their name on it, so I'm, I'm claiming it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unintended Consequences. To help us observe how the unexpected success of a project can adversely affect the environment around it, please give this podcast a five-star rating on iTunes and promote it to every single person you know. You can learn more about LaunchDarkly at launchdarkly.com slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at LaunchDarkly. 